0: What is up, Brad fans? How you doing? How you living? Let me just ask you this one question right now. When's the last time you checked your butt? If you're like me and you have an immature family and you are yourself immature, uh, you've probably asked someone in your life recently when they're looking for their keys or something, have you checked your butt? And I can say from experience, this joke is absolutely hilarious when you're the one delivering it, not so much when you're the one receiving it. But it's a valid question. When's the last time you checked your butt? Because, believe it or not, many people, and increasingly a younger demographic of people, are dying from embarrassment. Why? Because they won't get their butt checked. They're too embarrassed to have someone else, let alone themselves, check their butt. And this fact was the motivation behind the creation of a brand new documentary airing this Thursday on CBC's The Nature of Things called But Seriously. The Nature of Things, if you live in Canada, is an iconic institution when it comes to science documentaries, science communication. It airs every Thursday on the CBC in Canada at 9 p.m. It's also available uh, on CBC Gem, which is, for Canadians, a free Database, Netflix, if you will, of all of the CBC programming. So there's tons of great things on there, including the nature of things and their latest film. But seriously, so when a press officer uh, for the CBC for the nature of things reached out to me to ask if I wanted to uh, interview the host of this new documentary, Anthony Morgan, one of the hosts of the nature of things, uh, I said yes. I was intrigued. I'll tell you this though. Upon watching the film, I was blown away with with the depth of questions that were actually brought up with this film about topics like evolution, developmental biology. I knew that I was going to get some interesting facts about the butt, some cool stories about crazy animals that do weird things with their butts, Uh, but I was really, really impressed with and blown away, I'll say, by... Yeah, the questions that this film had me thinking about butts and how fundamental they are to life. Eating and then getting rid of waste is something all animals do, so it only makes sense that evolution would have spent some time dealing with this problem. And then go back to the the problem of, well, how does a butt evolve? This is all things that you will get in this film, but seriously. And, like I said, it the 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 questions about evolution in developmental biology extend beyond the butt. But this film had me really thinking about a lot of cool biology, uh, and I was really entertained along the way. So I highly recommend that people go and check it out. And then serendipitously, I find out in this conversation that Anthony Morgan, who is, like I said, host of The Nature of Things. Uh, He's worked with many TV stations, uh, TV programs in Canada, a lot of like iconic ones, uh, channels like YTV, uh, shows like Daily Planet, uh, Quirks and Quarks. Again, if you're from Canada, you know these names. They're they're staples uh, on Canadian uh, media landscapes. Uh, And he's also a PhD researcher investigating how we can have better conversations, less polarized conversations about controversial science, which if you follow my podcast, if you're a regular listener to the show, you know that this topic has come up a lot recently. So it was super fun to talk to Anthony about the film and all of these uh, profound questions about development, evolution, and buts, and then to also pick his brain about some of these challenges uh, I've been having been you know tossing around in my mind about science communication this idea that we need to be able to make informed decisions as a society but how do we get informed there's people that don't believe uh, scientific papers or they're cherry-picking data from other things there's all of these questions that's going around and Anthony and I talked about as he put it uh, how do you get a society that has the ability to grow wisdom and make wise decisions about the technology that we're building. We both agree that science uh, is a process of producing knowledge. But what we do with that knowledge is ultimately up to everybody, not just the scientists or the people who pay for the science. We also talked about how science isn't just this thing that that pulls facts out of the air. it's it's a it's a human process that then has all of these different, biases that go into it, each person's individual bias, the economics of their situation, the politics of where they're doing their science, all of these factors can influence what questions you can even ask, and therefore what knowledge you're actually going to produce. So for us science communication geeks, this was a fascinating, fascinating conversation. But I think even if you're not in the weeds of science communication, uh, you'll enjoy it as well. Anthony is a a great speaker, a really intelligent guy, uh, and I really, really had a lot of fun talking to him. It was super great to meet him, uh, and I hope he comes back to talk about his thesis work. We also touched on one of the things he's doing To help deal with this polarization. And it's freestyle socials, as he calls them. And he'll explain what it is near the end of the episode, but it's a great live pub game, pub event that he takes around Toronto, the Toronto area. There's a a card game version that you can get and play with your friends, but it's a game to undivide us, to have interesting conversations about potentially controversial topics like science, or even do you pee in the shower? So stick around to the end of the episode to catch that part of the chat. And please, please, please check the show notes. Check the show notes for all the links to Anthony Morgan. He's on Instagram at Anthony Morgan Science. Uh, The Freestyle Socials Game at Freestyle Socials Game is on there. So you can, if you're in the Toronto area, uh, attend one of these games. And like I said, you can get the home version uh, if you're interested. And as always, check the show notes again for the links to me, us, the show, at 2 brad for You on X and Instagram. Uh, and really, we have a new website. You can go there and get all of the, the details. It's it's linked in the show notes. I know not a lot of people get moved from, from a podcast intro to a website, but it is there in the show notes. Uh, you can donate uh, a few dollars to the show, But the biggest way you can help is by rating, reviewing uh, this podcast wherever you get your podcast. This helps put us into the feed, into the algorithm, into the system, so we get pushed out to more people, more potential listeners. So please do, wherever you're getting your podcasts, give us a like, follow, review, whatever the button is on that platform. I would really, really appreciate it. Uh, And as always, check the notes uh, for all the relevant links and details. If you do hit us up on Instagram at 2 brad 4 uh, you can find a link in the bio there too that, that unlocks the world of 2 brad 4 for you. Shoot us a DM, shoot us an email, 2 brad at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Leave a comment on any one of our posts or on the episode itself on your podcast feed. Like I said, we would love to hear from you uh, and we would love for you to let your friends hear about us with that rate, review, subscribe uh, or you can just tell them the old-fashioned way in person go figure anyway, that's enough of the uh, shameless plugging and promotion let me please introduce to you Anthony Morgan and this great film but seriously uh, and an even greater conversation about all things butts and science communication here we go Anthony, it's really great to meet you. Thank you for joining me uh, on the show today uh, to talk, but seriously, uh, a great uh, movie that I was, a documentary from the nature of things that I was able to to screen. Uh, I'll let you kind of introduce yourself uh, just real quick, couple of lines who you are, how you got involved with the CBC. Because honestly, as someone growing up in Canada, you know the nature of things. If you're a kid that's into science in Canada, the nature of things is, you know it. You've seen it. It's an institution. So thank you for being here. Who are you? How do you, what's your science background and how did you get involved with the nature of things?
1: (laughs) I love that. Um, Thank you for being, thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time. Um, I am a fellow science communicator. I have been a professional science communicator for the last uh, nearly 20 years now. Um, I started when I was 18 years old. And, um, at working at the Ontario Science Center in Toronto, Canada. Um, and I'm 37 now, so I've been doing it for over half my life at this point, nearly to I'm about a year off from 20 years. And it's, um, it's something I fell in love with working at the Science Center. Science was something I fell in love with there. Um, because I, like a lot of people, um, kind of went through high school when I was doing the maths and I was doing the chemistries and I was doing the biologies and I could do them, but it wasn't like I loved them. Mm. Um, But uh, it wasn't until I started working at the Science Center that I I really did. I was like a lot of people where it was just kind of like once, my thought was like, once I leave high school, I'll be glad to be done with that. And then um, the Science Center really changed the way that I felt about it. I really, I fell in love with like the kind of magic that science can produce. Um, I should be careful about using those two words together. But I I do often. I
0: understand what you're saying.
1: And um, yeah, well, because it really is like at the Science Center, it's like you go there and there are a bunch of these like street magicians all around the building, um, but they tell you how they do your, their tricks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, it was incredible to me. And uh, so I fell in love with that, that feeling you get when when somebody does some kind of demonstration that like it blows your mind, it changes the way that you see the world. And you know, the best, so I, I started chasing that feeling. I call myself like a, a science junkie or I call it chasing the wonder dragon mm. and uh, just getting to getting to create that feeling for other people um, it's just so addictive because then you get to relive that excitement um, through their eyes as well. And it's just win, win, yeah. win. So anyways, fell in love with it and I decided I'm going to – I want to make um, a life of this. I think this is what I want to do vocationally. And so um, I started my own company called Science Everywhere. We were uh, doing a lot more kind of street busking and uh, street science kind of stuff just because my thought was, you know, if you if you want to reach people who don't know that they love science yet – um you can spend time in the science center but that's not really that's the choir you're kind of preaching so yeah. I wanted to reach the non choir I hear you I hear you And so I started just uh doing weird stuff like vacuum sealing myself to buildings <laughs> downtown Toronto and and um just anything I could do to get people excited about science yeah. and uh uh there's no guidance counselor in the world who'll tell you that that's a great idea but it turned out to be a, bit, a pretty good business decision because um I ended up getting um discovered i suppose it is uh by discovery channel um so i i got to host a segment on daily planet for a bunch of years and i started working with uh ytv and uh cbc and and uh Ro- city line and rogers and vice and anyways it, it all snowballed from right. there so i've been i've been blowing stuff up on tv for the last maybe almost 10
0: years now. amazing i love that it's like First of all, the the wonder dragon, I totally get that. I always kind of describe it as like like you're on like science is on the tip of the spear, right? Like you know, hurtling into the unknown and it's like what better place to be yes. than like right there where new stuff is coming exactly. to life, right?
1: right at the edge of what exactly we
0: know. yeah and then the idea of just like hey no one's going to tell you that this is a job it was the same thing for me like it took me like a career day uh, and someone who was yeah working cbc you know doing documentaries on the side of their research and they were just like no, no no this is a job like you can like, why not you? Yeah. Right. And then you just start doing it and you start you know, yeah. doing things, getting things. And once you do one, then people are like, Oh, Hey, he can do that. Oh, Hey, she can do that. Yeah. And then it snowballs. Right. And there you go. And next thing, you know, you're on, uh, exactly. you know, these institutions, you, you mentioned YTV. Oh my God. It's been a long time since I've thought about YTV, but yeah. <laughs> you know, that's great. That's amazing. Uh, so congrats for that. That's a great journey. Uh, I love to hear it. Yeah. Thanks. Um, and let's, in the limited time that we have here, we have to talk about this movie that you you just put together. And I have a lot of questions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I imagine. Yeah. And so the movie is called But Seriously. You can imagine from the title that that is a documentary film, a scientific take, looking at everything <laughs> but. And so... There's a lot of butt turns. Right. There's a lot of uh, butt humor that's in the movie, which is great. Uh, I can imagine you're tipping your hat yes, to the right. It's quite cheeky. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. And I, I'm, I tried to avoid it when I was thinking about lines. And so, but who knows? It might come up. My first, let's start with this. And I, this is actually kind of how you start in the movie as well. But let's, let's get some definitions. Of the butt, because I think sure. everybody has a different. I know I had when when you spoke to the the first uh, the first guest on your program, you, when you're going into definitions, I had them in my head. You know, I knew what I thought the butt was, but we have terms like the anus, the rectum, the colon. Uh, we find That's from right. turtles the the cloaca. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of different terms that go <laughs> into this posterior region. Uh, I'll just say for me, the butt was always the cheeks, the outside. You've been through this topic, you know, you've gone in one end and come out the other, let's say. What's the definitions? Mm-hmm. Where did you land when it comes to butt? Oof.
1: yeah, this is this is tricky um because it really it really depends who you ask. Um, we spoke with, as you pointed out, we spoke with lots of different kinds of uh, experts during the the documentary. We spoke with um, a guy who studied the evolution of the mm-hmm. anus um and so he would say that the anus is part of the butt um we spoke with um uh, artists and painters who would call the butt you know they're talking about the gluteus maximus and they know the the musculature and the shape and the form or or um uh, scientists who are looking at the evolution of, of the butt as it relates to you know um evolutionary fitness and and why you want to carry fat in that particular region to make sure that you can raise big get strong and healthy kids um so if the butt really the definition um, is kind of up to each person. I'd say for me in general, I'd start with the cheeks. I'm going to put my hands down. I would start with the, uh, I'd start with the cheeks. Um, and I'd say it, it more broadly yeah, it includes the cheeks and then, um, probably the, the anus as well. Maybe a little bit of uh, a little bit of rectum, I'd say, but but that broadly that broad area yeah. covers what the butt is oh, to yeah. me.
0: Yeah, I can. I, I mean, if there is, uh, you know, a a butt scientist, a proctologist, somebody listening to this program, and you're screaming at your uh, your podcast listening device right now, no, you didn't mention the colon. The colon's got to be. We apologize. It's <laughs> there's a whole few different things going on there, um, but the thing that I found. Interesting. Uh, and I think this is cool about the documentary is that, you know, we all make jokes. Everybody has, you know, their you know their fart humor and stuff like this. But to actually think of the but seriously, mm-hmm. but seriously, great title. Um you know, you don't do that very often, right? Unless you, you know, I love that there's the human angle and the proctology and the, and you know, the message, the, the public service announcement about getting your colonoscopies and stuff. But I started thinking about it when I was watching the movie, uh, especially when it came to the segment on insects and the diversity of insect butts. Yes. I was like, you know what? Excretion, let's say, you know, you, you're eating and then excreting waste. So taking in nutrients processing them and then excreting the waste is like fundamental to life. Yep. So really the butt and this process is mm-hmm. fundamental to life. So it's like of course evolution probably spent some time there, you know? And why not? Yeah. In the case of the insects while you're, you know, tinkering around, let's say, with this uh, with this apparatus in evolutionary terms. Why not see what else you can do? Why not see what else is useful? So maybe you can give us a little. Uh, you can react to that statement uh, in the context of all the crazy insect uh, butts that we see in the film.
1: Yeah. Um, no, I'd be delighted to. So uh, I think you're exactly right that the the anus really and the that the exit broadly speaking is uh, really fundamental to so many different kinds of life on this planet. And, um, you know, most people don't know that when you're developing in utero, when you're like a little, before you're even a, a fetus, you're like a zygote or a blastocyst or a little collection of cells. The first thing more or less that forms is the anus, um, in human beings. Like you get this, this outer bubble of, um, cells and then this little kind of depression that forms the, the inner layers. And so the first thing that we all are is kind of an anus, which is a little bit of a bummer. I, mm. I should write that down. That's pretty good. Uh, see what you um, did but, there. Uh, I think it's, so it's really fascinating that, that evolution, um, that that's the way that evolution shaped us. And, but it's not the only, it's the way that it shaped us, but it's certainly not the only variety of anus that exists, as you pointed out. I think my favorite example was a variety of, I believe it was a kind of ant that um, it's, you ever had? you ever use that gorilla glue stuff? Mm -hmm. uh where you squeeze it and and two different containers release like a a substance and they mix together and then once they mix then it it activates it and that's when you get your glue there's a variety of ants that can do something like that um to produce folic acid uh in its abdomen and then fire it out like high speed fired out and burn its victims or its attackers like like an alien it can fire acid out of its out of its backside and it's that's just one example. There are other species of uh, insect and ants that um, use their abdomens and their their butts, so to speak, as as kind of storage, is like Tupperware. It's so they will feed their friends out of their own butts. <laughs> um, there are just so many things that I learned that I never expected to say in a public space. Um, that I learned uh, doing this documentary. It's been it's been delightful to see the range of butts that exist. Yeah,
0: and like and again, like thinking of like you know like. I'm a biologist, that's how I was trained. It's like, you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, right? And you mentioned how, and this was another great part of the film, because speaking to the developmental biologists that's, uh, you know, studied this and they they figured out, you know, that like, yeah, we all start as, you know, a butt first. We're basically just a butt (laughs) first. There's some funny memes, actually, I've seen about that. But anyway, um, this idea of you know, evolution and, like, fine-tuning things, uh, this same, I think it was the same scientist, was was looking at how you, how you really go from, like, one opening to two openings, because there's also creatures that have like, right you know, they, they, they take things in, or it was the jellyfish, right? So you, how do you go from, like, you know, the jellyfish right. is, like, the rudimentary, let's say, ancestral form of life, and it has one opening. So food That's goes right. in, it gets digested, and it comes out the same thing. So the the idea that there was a selection pressure to not poop out of your mouth yeah. is fascinating to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a strong social pressure to avoid that. but
0: I'll throw that to you.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, you're, I think you're referring to Andreas Hedchnall, who mm-hmm. is a, uh, a researcher who studies, amongst other things, the evolution of the anus. and um, And his research is dedicated to solving this mystery that most of us had no idea existed. Uh, which is how do you go from a body plan like you pointed out like a jellyfish where it's just kind of like a plastic bag shape food goes in and cu- and poop comes out of the same exit how do you go from that to having a one-way digestive system right like a tube where food goes in one end and it goes out the other and it turns out there are a couple of ways that you could do this and a couple of hypotheses that evolutionary biologists have about how exactly the anus, the anus developed so one theory says you've got kind of this plastic bag and and so you've got the opening here on one side and then you've got the other side is this closed end. And you can just take a pair of scissors and sort of snip out the closed end and voila, you got yourself a tube. Food goes in the same opening that always existed, but now it comes out of a different opening. Mm-hmm. That's one way that the, the anus might've evolved. The other way that might've occurred is that instead of um, cutting a hole in your bag, you just take the opening of the bag and you and you pinch it right in the center. And that way, effectively, you've got um, an opening that's split in two and you can choose, you know, which way you want the food to go, but the food will essentially then just go in, into one half of the... So like imagine having your mouth and then pinching your lips right in the middle. Mm-hmm. Now you can put food in the right side of your mouth and then the poop would come out of the left side of your right. mouth. That's, that's kind of a good way to think about it. <laughs> it's an unpleasant way to think about it, but it is <laughs> theoretically, biologically accurate. That's, that's m- what may have happened. Yeah. And so... Andreas's goal was to understand, well, which one came first? Did the mouth come first or did the anus come first? Um, did, they, um, did they evolve simultaneously? Yeah. And so he ended up studying this uh, the species of a flatworm that you can only find in uh, the esophagus of these things called sea cucumbers. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with sea, co- sea cucumbers, but they're... Um, they're among the most um, bizarre. <laughs> I mean, I've I've had to get comfortable talking about lots of different structures. They're among the most phallic structures that you will find in all of the Yeah, nature.
0: that's true. Yeah, um,
1: <laughs> they are these kind of kind of floppy long. They're like cucumbers. They're like floppy cucumbers. They remind
0: me of the eggplant emoji.
1: Yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, so when we're on the uh, the, the vessel, we were uh, sort of in a research vessel um, in the fjords of Norway with Andreas. We were hunting for these these sea cucumbers, and so we, we lower these this dredger um, that goes something like a couple kilometers deep into the water. And um, it's specialized so that it only picks up these sea cucumbers and leaves the rest of the, the wildlife down there. I don't even know how they did that, that was amazing. But um, when we pulled a bunch of them up, he was describing this creature to me, which is really fascinating to see up close. They look really cool. And I was, you know, I noticed that it was quite floppy and he's like, yeah, but when they become agitated or disturbed, um, they can become quite uh, uh, rigid, or I think he used the word stiff, um, which was a whole other yeah. thing, a whole other documentary.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, but in the esophagus of these creatures, you can find these flatworms, and in these flatworms, you can find different kinds of cells that evolve that grow at different rates um, as they. You know, as you know, they go from sort of what we would call like something like a zygote to differentiation and growing out, and so he can use markers in those cells to figure out which cells grow first—the ones that represent a mouth or the ones that represent an anus—and to to really help us solve this mystery. Right. Uh, I don't know if I want to give it away. Yeah, 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 People we, should check it out and watch. We don't but it was, uh, it's spoilers. Cool.
0: Spoilers. We want to watch the watch the documentary. Um, but this was this this again, like, put me on this this train of thought that again, I wasn't totally expecting when uh when i when i screened the film you know i wasn't totally expecting to have kind of these really kind of deep evolutionary thoughts and questions but like i said that just that that initial uh realization that excretion you know the 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 job of the butt of the anus is so fundamental to life that yes there's gonna like it's it's evolution has spent time solving this problem, you know, and as you get more complex, as yeah. you eat more complex things, your waste is going to be, you know, obviously for us mammals, like to think about it, it's like you can't, your hygiene, right? Like you can't, ha- you have to have those two things separate. Like for a jellyfish, maybe it doesn't matter, right? But yeah. as you evolve, you're going to need to sort of separate these structures. And there was a line in uh, in the in the in the film that was talking about how development is fundamental to evolution so you talk to developmental biologists about this is fundamental to evolution and just for me as a biologist i i thought that one line really struck me because i think in science uh, you probably experienced this you know everyone gets siloed in their own areas right and so the people that like they study like mm-hmm. molecular biology or genetics or something you don't Maybe don't talk to each other as, as much. But that line of development is fundamental to evolution, kind of to me, like it's it was a little like, ah, you know, you could see this thread of if you understand yeah. how a body, uh, any organism, whether it's a human or an insect or a mammal or a reptile or whatever, right? It goes from that original collection of cells to the form that it is. That's the process of – that's like the story of evolution for that animal, right? Because evolution is going to have to act during those pathways to influence those pathways to change the shape of the the organism. So that just – again, I never thought I would get this deep and like this deep biology moment, you know, biology nerd (laughs) moment for me uh, in a butt documentary, but – Kudos to you guys for, <laughs> for bringing that out.
1: <laughs> well, thank you, sir. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's really, it's very cool to me. It's one of the things that kind of gives you shivers, like in all the best ways, right? The, all the tingles, because um, like you really, you start to see these connections that you make these insights. Um, you get these insights um, studying these kinds of creatures that are really unexpected. I think one of the coolest parts for me is trying to answer the question why evolution would want to, like, you know, jellyfish they're not the most um, complex creatures in the world, they're, and their table manners are terrible. They you know, they eat and poop out of their mouths, but why would you need to go from that um, to develop an anus? Why is that necessary in the first place? And and there's a really profound evolutionary question there, right, like what's the pressure pushing it that way? And part of the answer, at least, is that um, if, if you want your uh, body plan to become, if you want to be able to do more things to more effectively achieve your goals in the world, Uh, You need more specialized kinds of systems in your body, um, and that requires that you kind of compartmentalize things in different places. And so having a one-way tube means – well, this is the way that Andreas explained it to me anyways. Having a one-way tube makes it easier to compartmentalize different kinds of structures and specialize different structures so that you can achieve – Little sub goals that make your overall goal easier to to accomplish. That's the way it was explained to me. You know, and that I understood it. That, so.
0: that actually, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, you do you want you know, you want your you want your feeding apparatus to to do that and nothing else, right? But then you think about it, mm-hmm. then we have these insects who have these butts that do all sorts of things. So there's clearly an add on yeah. there once you get like once you've compartmentalized to have your feeding you know let's say tube you know with with the two openings well, then maybe that leaves room then now for evolution to be like, wow, okay, we got that sorted. We got everything else sorted. We got, you know, so what, can <laughs> okay. I, what else yeah. can we do with this? And again, I know we're putting like a personification on evolution, but I think the audience understands, you know. Which is fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but you know what I mean? So it's like it, it kind of opened up more possibilities, right? Which is, again, like fascinating.
1: Yeah, no, it's really cool. It's, it's this idea called exaptation, the idea that um, evolution has produced some something some feature some structure some developmental part of an animal's body plan and then it figures out ways to sort of repurpose stuff that's already evolved so you know our tongues um and our ability to produce speech as complex as human speech is is a good example of exaptation because mm-hmm. lots of animals have tongues um but humans have exapted the use of our tongues and our ability to kind of stop and start the flow of air to be able to produce more and more complex sounds. Um, that's not why our tongue originally evolved, but we certainly use it to great effect that way. And so, yeah, there are lots of examples of exaptation in uh, in nature, and uh, I think yeah, the butt has probably a, some of the most noteworthy and spectacular among them.
0: <laughs> it's definitely up there. It's definitely up there. Uh, and so, when you were speaking with the uh, with the with the lady that did the the insect research, you guys, it's a great shot in the film where you're watching film of these insects doing these crazy things with their butts. Um, she even mentioned that like what what we could learn from these insects, you know, in terms of like, you know, um, biotechnology is is, is what I, I gathered she was alluding to. And I wonder if you guys spoke about that maybe a bit more in depth, maybe off camera or something. But that's another idea that is like, again, sounds ridiculous when you're like, oh, what new technology might come from studying An insect butt. But again, I think this is something that scientists in the audience will appreciate because how many times have they gotten the question, like, well, who cares? Why are you studying that? Like, why are you studying the the butt of an insect, you know? And it's like, but. You know, you, you 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 mentioned the 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 insect that was shooting the acid out, you know, like an epoxy acid out. It's like these kind of things. So I don't know. Was there some kind of example or something uh, maybe that she you 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 got that was like yeah? There's some there's some biotech applications to insect butts. So I don't
1: recall specific questions that I asked. That's her name was Ainsley Sego. She worked at Carnegie uh, Museum in Pittsburgh. She was amazing um, and just a fascinating person to talk to and. And um, the cool thing about that building is that's also where like film, or film crews will come to shoot there a lot. So I didn't get to ask her about specifically that, but she did show me, they shot that sh- the Silence of the Lambs there.
0: Oh, lovely. <laughs> so that scene
1: where Clarice is walking around and she sees that like the iconic butterfly, she pulled out that the butterfly. Moth. yeah. The, yes, the moth, thank you. And she showed me that moth. So we got to walk around looking at all that kind of stuff. Um, so I didn't get to ask her about specifically biomimicry, but I did ask other people in the documentary about that and what we can learn from, you know, now, when you go and talk to all these experts around the world about uh, who study the butt, the, the first question you ask almost all of them is, "Why are you doing this?" Yeah, <laughs> like, why do you <laughs> what
0: want to know about
1: this? And so, one of the fascinating um, technologies, really, that's come out of this that we're we're starting to mimic is uh, based on uh, two species. I'd say primarily, um, one is the red painted turtle, and the other is loach. A loach, so loaches. They're a kind of fish, and both of them are able to. Uh, breathe through their butts, through their anuses. Um, why in God's name? Yeah, I know. I know. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> I'm doing
0: to... the head exploding motion. Right, It now. was amazing.
1: Yeah. Um, because I mean, it's not something that's obvious to you, right? Until you think about it a little bit. So, you know, you're a red painted turtle. Um, and that means that in the wintertime you hibernate. And that means you're often, you know, you're, you hibernate in the water. So you're trapped beneath the ice. Um, they breathe air. So how, if it's hibernating for like a month or, or two months, how is a red painted turtle breathing during that whole time? And it turns out that they've evolved this um, adaptation in their, their rectal, like their rectal tract, their, their colon, their, their sort of intestinal tract, that allows them to quite effectively absorb oxygen through their anus so they can literally breathe through their butts. Um, and why would anybody study this? Well, you would study it if you wanted to understand how to help people who have something like cystic fibrosis or or other challenges where that make it difficult for them to get enough oxygen through their lungs. Um, so if you're a doctor Takanori Takanori Takibi, Takibi, Takibi. I practiced his name a lot before this. <laughs> I wanted to make sure I got it right. So I'm going to I'm going to say it again and I'm going to nail it. Dr. Takanori Takibi He wanted to understand how he could help patients like that, too, because his he had a father who had a a problem in the same vein where his dad couldn't get enough oxygen in through his lungs. And so Dr. Takeby has been understanding how we can modify the rectal tracts of other kinds of species to increase their capacity to absorb oxygen and theoretically be able to do this with humans down the line. Now, I want to stress this is not a long- term solution, so you're not going to be able to go get a surgery and become Aquaman,
0: yeah. uh, like the most
1: un- t- like p g thirteen unfriendly Aquaman ever, yeah, um, but it is a potentially viable solution for helping a lot of people who um could really benefit from that kind of biomimicry,
0: yeah, and again, this is another section of the documentary yeah. that you guys you guys go in deep, but you talk to him, and it's it's yeah, it's wow it's really really interesting the idea that that's even possible that that even already happens in nature yeah. is i mean in one way these things are always incredible right like you hear something like that and you're like it's incredible but then when you think about it you're like well kind of makes sense you know as a solution to a problem yeah. it's like eh makes sense you know Yeah. <laughs> so why not makes sense yeah and so that's what i loved about this this yeah. film there was so there was so many of these things and again like I don't know if you've, uh, if you've experienced this in your science communication career, um, and I don't mean to be, to put any, uh, shade on anything or whatever, but sometimes I feel like science communication, you get some of this, you know, uh, maybe call it toilet humor kind of stuff and it's fun and whatnot, but it's not, I feel like I'm always yearning for something a bit deeper, right? Like I, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that's great. We all know the poop facts, you know. We've heard this, you know, we've read it in the books that you you know, like these fun little books when we're kids. But that's this documentary is is not that. I mean, there's fun, there's there's like I said, many butt puns, <laughs> which were actually well crafted. And I give again your writers and you <laughs> props for that. Um, but there was these deeper questions, you know, that like and like I said, like it 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 hit me in this way where I was like thinking about you know, evolution and development and biology in a way that, you know, I'm, I I wasn't expecting. Uh, and maybe since, you know, leaving the lab that I, you know, sometimes I don't, you know, it, it brought me back to one of those moments, uh, like we talked about at the beginning, where you're like, yeah, this is really like, fundamental, fascinating, kind of cutting edge stuff coming out of, you know, butts. Yeah.
1: Um, coming out of butts is the phrasing. there So I... Um, <laughs> Not to not to step on the profundity of the point that you're making. <laughs>
0: um, it's okay. This, but I think that that's really... This show is all about that. <laughs>
1: uh, I think for me that really is the goal with this specific episode and the show generally is that I really, you know, when I started in science communication, I fell in love with science because I saw how understanding the world around me could let me do incredible things. It let me do amazing things. And... For me, I got into it because it was really fun to do it. I really enjoyed myself. It was it was an adventure. Um and it was the kind of it was it allowed me to do the kind of exploration that kids are experts at mm-hmm. that you know, 6 and 7 and 8 year olds are very good at. And so I I don't want to lose that. Um I don't want people to feel like the exploration of science has to be exclusively Serious and rigid and and stuffy and um and you know science uh, tackles very serious and very important things. Um, I think we we you know highlight that in um, important parts of this documentary, but I love the idea that people would get to explore and be curious the way that we did when we were kids because it's um I think for so many people there's this huge gap in their minds between science and fun. there's mm-hmm. this chasm between them and and they can be both. I think science runs the game from playful to profound. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't have to be one or the other. And, you know, I I really like that we get to lean into the profundity in this episode, that the reason fundamentally that we did it, although we had lots of fun with it, the reason we made this doc was that people are literally dying of embarrassment. Um, That we are too shy and embarrassed and bashful to talk about this part of just, it's just basic anatomy, everybody has a butt. And, um, you know, there's a social taboo around it that means that if people have a problem, they are quite reluctant to go and talk to their doctor about it. And so we really wanted to normalize talking about it. And that meant that we had to get all the giggles out of the way, you Mm -hmm, know, that mm -hmm. we so part of the doc, we just travel, literally travel the world, find people on the street and ask them to list as many words for butt as they possibly can. (laughs)
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. and, you know, you're surprised and laughing and giggling at the ones you hear. I, I loved here, like, you know, dump truck, caboose, rump, um, cake maker. I heard them all. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but the goal was, to, yeah, they're pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. But the goal was to get ourselves um, at, over that um, so that we can talk about it um, in important ways. And, you know, the other thing is that if you're going to do a documentary about the butt um, and you're going to try to, if you're gonna to try to take it exclusively seriously, there are very few ways I can think of that'd be more effective to get you mocked relentlessly yeah. than by taking yourself extremely seriously yeah, yeah, yeah. while talking about the butt for about an hour. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we we leaned in. It's fun. Yeah. Um. It's fun and it's serious. It's both.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a good approach. And like I said, I don't mean to th- to throw shade on any on any you know format or anything like that. Oh but no. I've, I feel like, uh, and that we can. I, uh, maybe kind of tra- transitioning here to some science communication stuff, just because that's what we both do. But yeah, this you also kind of mentioned it um, in the beginning is that I feel like a lot of science communication does preach to the choir. Yes, you know, we're already we're already talking to the people that are into it. Like it's like you and me, and you know, even probably people that are listening to this podcast. I'm hoping that we can kind of branch out. That was one of the things in making this podcast. Yeah. I wanted to make it a tone that was like really you know, not stuffy, not scientific, you know, really loose, really common, but also touching on that deep and the profound and stuff. And so it's like, uh, you, you mentioned it. How do you find that? Because I feel like I'm always struggling with that uh, as a science communicator. And maybe when you're doing live shows at the science center or something, you get that more feedback kind of thing. But like you said, that's, that's already like a captive audience It's already the choir. You did the street shows and stuff. I wonder what your thoughts are on that because it feels like a lot of times, even when I go to meetings, you know, science communication conferences, get togethers, you know, that kind of thing, everyone's always struggling. Well, how do we make this, how do we get outside of this bubble? How do we get outside of this bubble?
1: Yeah. No, I love that. And I got to say for the record, it is very fun getting a talk shop with uh, <laughs> with folks who spend a lot of time thinking th- as much time thinking about it as I do. Um, I'd say my favorite example um, of the way that I like to approach science communication is, uh, I mentioned it earlier that I, I vacuum sealed myself to a building in downtown Toronto. That's a, that's an objectively pretty crazy thing to do. Um, I'm aware of it, but you know, it seemed like a pretty awesome idea at the time. And my rationale was, you know, my favorite group of people to engage at the science center are uh, the kids who were there on a field trip, like mm-hmm. the high school kids that are sitting um, they're there on a field trip, but they're just sitting in the cafeteria the whole time. Yeah. Um, and they got this wonderful world around them and they're like, eh, that's not why I'm here. I'm here. I just wanted to get out of a science class. This is a good way to do it. So I'm going to sit and talk to my friends. Right, right. Getting to reach them with something that makes them go, wow, that I live for that feeling. And the place to find people who don't know that they love science yet is not, inside the science center. It's not necessarily on science shows like mine. Um, what I tried to do was to go to where people were um, first and foremost. And so that's why I did it at five o'clock on a Friday at Queen and Spadina, which is right downtown Toronto. <laughs> um, I did it at a time that I knew that people would be, you know, it was happy hour, it was a Friday, so they wouldn't have any specific plans for that time and they'd be walking around and, and. Um, uh, if they had plans for later that night, then they could do it. But if something interesting enough caught their eye, they would stop and, you know, see what's going on. Yeah. And I thought, well, what could I do? Well, you know, I bet if they saw a man basically webbed up like Spider-Man to the side of a building, they'll probably stop.
0: <laughs> Most and people And that's exactly would. what yeah. happened. There were like
1: three or – how could you not? <laughs> and um, there were like three or 400 people that stopped to ask me all kinds of questions. You know, those questions like – you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Is somebody making you do this? Yeah, are you are okay? Are you hurt? Yeah. <laughs> Right. But they were also asking really profound questions about like how exactly this was possible because it was only possible using Um, principles that I applied understanding atmospheric air pressure. I was using the 15 pounds per square inch of air pressure to seal me to that glass. And I couldn't move. And people were like, wow, how do you do that? Um, Does it matter the kind of surface you're on? Can you do it on something like wood? Can you do it yourself at home? How do I do it safe? Like they were really deeply engaging with the science. And it was a really, really fun experience. And so to me, I really love to focus on science as process Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: um agreed yeah uh,
1: if you science is not what you think it's how Mm -hmm. it's the way that you think about a question you don't know the answer to or a problem you don't know how to solve and then how you can take that knowledge and use it in new and novel ways and that's what i try to i try to i try to be like a i try to steal as much as i can from magicians because um if there's one thing I've learned in my 20 years as a science communicator, it's that you, you can't teach anybody anything that they don't want to learn. Right. But what you can do is create environments where people feel intrinsically motivated. They feel self-motivated to go and be curious and explore and learn. And magicians are experts at creating that. Because anytime you see a good magic trick, the first words out of your mouth after they've done it are, how, how did you do, you do that? that? Yeah. <laughs> like, we want to know. And so I'm a magician who tells you how I do my tricks. I just do it with science. Here's how, and here's how you can do it too. And if you go to where people are, if you surprise them and you help them see how understanding science can improve things that matter to them, then I think you go a long way to expanding the tents to like really grow in that choir.
0: Yeah, 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 but I'd be
1: curious to hear how you think about this stuff too, because you've been you've been in the weeds in this stuff too.
0: Yeah, I've been in the weeds in it, and and the thing that I feel like is you know because I'm on the writing side a lot and the podcasting side where you don't get a lot of feedback, right? Like you don't get that instant feedback of right. an audience, right? So I think it's a little more difficult, and you know, for for practical reasons, to be honest, you know that that's where I I make you know my money. You know, I have to make a living. So the writing is kind of just that. that's a natural way for me to do it, especially living in Europe where, the you know, I, I learn the languages of the places I'm in, but I'm not fluent, right? Like it's harder to connect with people in that way uh, right. for the live shows. But I think what really, I always think the same thing, the process, right? That's kind of what I try and get across in, in, when the things that I write or this podcast especially too is that it's like science isn't this machine that just like plucks facts out of the air you know like it's it's a process and i'm really interested these days in exploring the other factors that influence that process so there's humans who are doing the experiments and creating the knowledge but every human every person has their own set of you know environment and factors that they live in that influence what questions they can ask what experiments they can even perform yeah. and what data is that's even right. possible to create and then that so there's already this filter on the on the on the information that on the, on the knowledge that we can create and what are all those things you know it's political it's cultural it's it's economics you know it's all of these things and that to me is really fascinating and that's something that i feel yeah. i would like to explore more with science communication is looking more at the people that do it You know, rather than like, uh, uh, this is a science show where you're going to learn this fact and you're going to learn this thing and you're going to learn about spaces. No, let's see the people that are doing it and understand. And I also feel like maybe this is a way to sort of break down that, that barrier because I've seen it in my own life with when I'm doing a PhD and maybe I have family members, friends, whatever, that are like totally distant from science. There's an immediate intimidation. You know, and it comes across as like, uh, they don't ask questions. They don't really, they're just like, oh, you're still doing that science thing. And you're just like, oh, okay, good. You know, good for you. But there's an, and I I feel it's an intimidation thing. And people feel like this science thing is, it's for this type of person that does, you know, that's this type, you know, and it's not me. But it's like what you said, when people were asking those questions, when you're stuck to that building in downtown Toronto, the questions they were asking are the science questions. Can it work here? What about yes. this material? That's yes. exactly what a scientist would do, right? So I w- I'm I'm interested in exploring ways to like let people know that it's not this separate thing from, you know, like this ivory tower concept, but also exploring yeah. the people that do it. And what are the factors that like influence why they ask the questions they ask, how they ask those questions, what are the... You know, now i'm going on and on and on but that's kind of my my that that's what's bubbling in my brain these days no
1: i love that i really love that i mean for me that's the i mean the core of what i study for my phd is the factors that prevent us or that shape the questions that we ask and the ways that we see the world but i really love that idea as as process right where you're encouraging them to we want, I want to, with this show and with everything that I've done in my work in the la, over the last 20 years, is to try to figure out how to remove some of those barriers, that feeling of, I have to get things right. I have to be perfect. I have to. People have this misconception that scientists um, have it right from day one, and that's not how it works. We're stumbling through. I think of science as kind of this process, almost like being at the eye doctor, where you've got this filter for this lens for seeing the world, right? Mm-hmm. And then the doctor will put a new lens in front of your eyes and say, better or worse. And all all right, better. Okay, good, you keep that one. And then they add another one, better or worse. And that, that one made it worse. Okay, get rid of that one. And so each lens is a new theory we have for how the world works. And we're just kind of trying to get a more and more yeah. clear, accurate picture of the universe. That's what we're doing. Even with our best theories, that's what we're doing. We're still taking guesses. I think that people kind of look at the facts that science has produced as um, unchanging, vertical, forever. Um, There are current best guesses, and we shouldn't get rid of them or discount them entirely because they're guesses. You know, the theory of gravity is a guess, but it's one that has an overwhelming amount of evidence behind it. It's still probabilistic, right? So it's 99.99999% likely to be accurate. Um, But any good scientist knows that if we have one experiment one day that um, repeatedly shows that our theory of gravity needs to change, then a good scientist says, well, it's time to change that
0: theory. Yeah, we're going to
1: update our beliefs.
0: And that's, uh, that's something that like, again, I think, you know, you've probably heard this too, in the science communication circles, we're having this crisis where people are, you know, abandoning science, blah, blah, blah all this thing, right? Like the, all of these, you mm-hmm. know, and it's political and it's all of these things that are coming and coming around. But that's something that's like, how do you, how do you explain that, that, science is ever changing, but you still have this authoritative, you know uh, bent behind it because you want right. to be able to give the give the weight of evidence behind what you're saying, right? like vaccines work, you know, like these kind of things, gravity, whatever it is. but also have that that open-endedness of like, but things can change. That seems like something people, I don't know. I I always wonder again because I don't have that feedback. Well, you know, one to one or like in live, you know, and 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 I don't know that anyone's really like done science communication studies on this. But it's like, how much of this is? It's it's a difficult thing to to maybe balance and try to communicate, and how much of it is on an yeah, audience, a specific so. audience that doesn't want to you know to accept that or is looking for certainty. You know, I don't know. These are these are these these challenges that I keep coming back to, and I, I don't have a good answer for how to deal with it. You know.
1: Well, I think that uh, our field has spent a lot of time wrestling with these kinds of things, and and for good reason. We really need to get it right, and um, uh, or to do our best to get as close to right as we can. I think the way I feel about it at the moment is that um, I look at uh, I look at science as kind of like playing a poker game, right? Um, And you've got to, you know, we all have to travel through the world making decisions to try to maximize our, you know, happiness in life, our, you know, positive outcomes, that kind of thing. Um, So you could look at something like vaccines and say, like, all right, well, are they safe? Are they a good idea? Um, Is it a good idea for me to get a vaccine? Um, Well, there is evidence that says there's lots of evidence that says, yes, this is a very good idea. There's not an absence of evidence that says um, there are some cases where sometimes it can not go ideally. But you look at it probabilistically. That's why I say it's like poker. Um, if you've got um, a straight flush, should you play the hand? Well, is it a guarantee you're going to win? No, but your chances are pretty damn good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you just go with the theories that have the probabilistic best support behind them. And that's things like gravity and and that the earth is round and that vaccines are generally a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um you just look at what what theories have the best evidence behind them, recognizing that sure anything could change, but you don't have a better strategy than going with what the best data available has to say. Yeah, and that's where that process orientation is really useful. That we recognize that science is not an endpoint; yeah. it's a process, yeah, yeah. one where we're constantly refining our understanding of the world.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I'll we can start wrapping it up here because I know you got to go. But I'll throw one thing uh, out at that comment, and it's just. That's great. It it makes sense to me, but what do we do if we agree then that like you know uh, you need to make these probabilistic decisions based on you know the best possible weighting of evidence? Uh, there's a lot of people that don't trust that evidence, right? And there's also this. Yeah. So this is again. Yeah. I I did an episode a couple months ago, it, it, end of 2023, with two science community. Well, two scientists did a science communication paper and we hit on this idea of, you know, genetics and genetic technologies are coming and they're coming fast and they're going to change a lot of medicine Mm -hmm. and even just force us to have some questions that we, you know, maybe aren't ready to, to, to talk about. Right.
1: Right. But yes, if that's the case,
0: if that's the case and we agree that, uh, People, citizenry should be in charge of or have a say of what gets done with these technologies, what we pursue, what we don't pursue, what's ethical, what's not ethical. They need to have an informed opinion. But where are they going to get that informed opinion? Right. right? And so then it comes down to this like competing, you know, uh, information streams or whatever you want to talk about. So, how do we? How do we provide the best possible information that people will actually listen to and trust in order that... Because that's the thing is science produces knowledge. It produces uh, these things that we can do, that we can understand. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, society is in charge of what we do with these things. And if we don't, as a society, say this is what we want, this is what we don't want, other people will make those decisions. I'm thinking of, you know, these billionaires that maybe don't have the best interest of uh, (laughs) humanity. I don't know. Maybe they do. I don't know. But do we want to leave it to that, right? So that's an interesting space that I'm just I'm constantly grappling with.
1: No, I love this. Good God, sir, I am uh, I am thrilled to hear you dive into this because (laughs) it's uh, it's what I've spent the last five my PhD like the last five years thinking about this problem. Right? What are you? How do we address? Because this part. Oh, wow! I didn't know that. I'm excited. (laughs) Yep. Um, So uh, at the moment, my feelings are um, generally that science tells us what's possible. Society decides what's right. Um, but for society to make good decisions, you really want a, a wise a, a society with a capacity to develop wisdom around how to use these technologies, right? We're building these insanely powerful AI. We're building the capacity to modify our DNA, you know? Um, how to, what's the wise way to use those things? So to answer that question, what I have been spending my, my last five years doing is building this live event series, a game designed to help both inform the public and help them make wise decisions. It's called a freestyle social. So what we do is we'll show up at a venue, something like a a, a library or a student center. My my favorite venues tend to be pubs because they're very sort of informal environments where people, they let go of some of that fear of needing to be right, right? It's not like you're not in a classroom being tested. And so we'll put tape down the middle of the floor Um, Divide the room in half, and we'll ask what I call spark questions. So things like, should we make robots smarter than us? Or should we uh, design our kid's DNA? Should we pee in the shower? You know, there's a real range in terms of profundity. And then we'll tell our audience, look, you got 10 seconds. What does your gut tell you? You got to pick a side. And, you know, everybody's all surprised at what side their friends pick. Oh, you pee in the shower, what's wrong with you?
0: And then um,
1: we'll put a microphone in the middle of the floor, open mic, and... Each half-the-room gets to explain to the other half why, dude, what are you what are you doing on that side? Like, Mike, we're roommates, stop peeing in our shower. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and the only rule of the game is if you hear an idea from the other side that surprises you or makes you laugh, you should switch sides. Ah. And that's because this game is not a debate. Right. In a debate, your goal is to have your side win, is to smash the other side, right? Is to yeah. own the noobs or the snowflakes or whoever on the other side. Right. Um, and that really genuinely shapes our thinking in quite unhelpful ways, ways that are unlikely to lead us to wisdom. Um, instead, the goal of our game is to find as many new and surprising and hilarious ways to see disagreements as we possibly can. And the way that we play it is set up so that you're populating that space with as many different perspectives, that, often ones that you haven't heard before as we can. Because like the core philosophy of the game is, we all have blind spots in our thinking that are by definition, invisible to us. Mm-hmm. We don't know that they're there. The best way to find your blind spots, talk to people who see things a little differently than you. They're they're kind of experts at it. Yeah. And so this game is designed to help us walk into that um, with a bit of calm and peace and serenity and mirth, lightheartedness. Like have some fun with this stuff. We've been having such a hard time with these disagreements. Um, I think a space like this is super valuable, a place where we can practice changing our minds with new and good information.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in a in a non-judgmental in a fun environment, like all of those things that you said, like that's yeah, it's great. Well, now I uh, now that I know this, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing your thesis and. Uh, good luck with that. (laughs) I'm really excited to see the... Thanks, I gotta get to writing. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what comes out with that. And uh, it was really, really great to talk to you. I mean, this was super fun. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time. And we have to let people know uh, where they can find uh, But Seriously. uh, When is it going to be on? How can they watch it? How should they watch it?
1: Sure. Um, Well, so first, thanks so much for having me, Bradley. I really appreciate it. Um, People can find... uh But seriously, on CBC Gem, it's free to uh, watch on CBC Gem. So you can just, it's like, I don't know if enough Canadians know about CBC Gem. It's awesome. It's like Netflix, but it's free. And you get to watch some really good content. There's good stuff on there, including the nature of things. Um, So you can uh, log on, just Google CBC Gem, and then the nature of things. Once you get there, you should be able to find it pretty easily. If you have cable, you can still watch it on TV. I don't know how many millennials still have cable. But if you do, (laughs) you can watch it Thursday nights at 9 p.m. Uh, but seriously, we'll be airing January 18th, uh, so folks can find it then.
0: Uh, and then, it, what about yourself? How can people follow you? Do you uh, do you have a social media presence? I don't know. Do, is it, do you are you promoting stuff there? You know, what is there anything else that basically you want to send to the people?
1: Yeah, sure. So if people want to find me on social media, I'm on Instagram at Anthony Morgan Science, and I, I try I'm trying increasingly to post all the things there. Um, Because I'm doing a a bunch of different things and I decided it might make sense to have a a place to share that. You can also find uh, me on my website at AnthonyMorganScience.com. I post um, event details about Freestyle Socials there as well. If you're interested in finding Freestyle Socials, you can find that at Freestyle Socials Game, uh, Freestyle Socials plural, Game. On Instagram as well and so people can uh, find out how to either attend games if they live local in Toronto or even to start your own or to find the home version of the game uh, we've developed uh, as a playing card game so you can get it wherever you are in the world Um, and if people want to find the nature of things uh, we don't have an it's it doesn't have its own Instagram account but you guys can find it on uh, CBC Docs on uh, Instagram Uh, it shouldn't be hard to find the CBC on Instagram they're they're pretty big so um, but otherwise, Bradley, it has been a, a genuine pleasure talking to you, man, and getting to. Uh, I love getting to dig into this stuff and and talk about kind of epistemology, how we know what we know, and and how we can structure our society so we can get better at it collectively. It's it's uh, it's a delight,
0: man. Hey, hey, I I, I agreed. I, I I wasn't I wasn't aware that you were doing that as your PhD. So this was a real treat for me to to have someone who was some good. I I mean, yeah yeah i i'm i'm at a loss for words i really really enjoy the conversation thank you again so much for being here uh and you have an open invitation anytime to to come back and and talk shop or any other projects that you're working on i would love to uh to promote that and uh and just yeah have a chat
1: that's amazing i might just take you up on that appreciate it
0: And here we go, as the Freak Motif play us out. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you tuning into the podcast. Uh, thank you to Anthony Morgan for coming on the show. Like I said in the intro, now again, and all throughout this episode, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. And I hope you did too. And please, 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 check the show notes. Go to the show notes. You can find all the links to Anthony Morgan stuff and all the links to our stuff, at 2Red for you on Instagram and Twitter. Hit us up, DM Use the show note links to find the website. Uh, unlock the world of TubeRad for you. We want to hear from you. And please rate, review, subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts. Until next time, my friends, thank you for tuning in and take care. Bye for now.